Good morning, Keystone. I hope you guys are having a fantastic Sunday and that you guys are having a fantastic July 4th weekend. My name is Ryan King. If you don't know who I am, I usually uh, work with our students and our young adults here at Keystone. And I have the honor and privilege of hanging out with you guys today and in giving a teaching that is not a part of a series, but rather is just a one-off about something I'm super passionate about, and I think can speak to us where we are at today in 2020. And this, this conversation is called Art of the Conversation, and I'm really excited about it. So let's jump in. Back in December of 2019, something incredible happened. Something so ridiculous, and you may have heard of this, something so ridiculous that it was hard to believe it was real. This was the title of the news article. A banana duct taped to a wall sells for $120,000 at Art Basel, Miami Beach. This piece of art in question is right here for you. And it is literally a banana duct taped to a wall. $120,000. And this piece is actually entitled The Comedian by Maurizio Cattellan. And, and, and it's, it's incredulous. When this piece came out, it set the world ablaze in conversation. It set the art world ablaze in conversation. And it gets more incredulous because Cattellan, in talking about this piece, aware that it's a banana duct tape wall, said that the new owners of the piece are welcome to replace the banana and the duct tape whenever it is needed. $120,000, it's crazy. And honestly, it's summed up perfectly in this little snippet of an article written about this piece. It says this. It is both a funny critique, so the comedian itself, is a funny critique of the absurdities of art, capital, art and capitalism. Yet, it is inherently part of the problem too. See, where this banana duct tape to a wall succeeded was not only in making $120,000, but also in making conversation. You could say that's almost the point of art itself, is to make conversation and to push people forward to debate and to discuss. And here's the thing, there's a saying out there, a painting is worth a thousand words, or this piece of art is worth a thousand words. And as I was contemplating our teaching today, I was wondering if we could flip the script on this. What if we just used our words to paint better pictures? Now you may be asking, all right, Ryan, where, where are you going with this? Where, where are you going with all of this? This, this is what I want to talk about today. In 2020, one of the things that has truly broken my heart is the loss of the art of the conversation. It's the loss of conversation itself. Because this year has been, and honestly will continue to be, a crazy and confusing year. I mean, we've got pandemic, politics, social issues. There's so many opinions. There's, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of resentment. Honestly, we're feeling the emotions. We're feeling anger. We're feeling just so much right now during this time. And honestly, it's hard to stay engaged without being enraged, right? It's hard to stay engaged in it all without feeling all of the emotion of it. And because of that, it's just hard to be engaged in general. 
And, and, and this, is, this is part of what brings up that rage and some of those feelings. It's because we have beliefs on issues and ideas and topics, and there's always somebody on the other side of those issues and topics that infuriate us because of the views they have. I mean, this is just the reality of what we're living into. And I'm going to give you guys a couple of just labels and terms, and in your mind, each one of you is going to be able to fill in the blank to these things, and, and, and hang on with me through these, because again, we're just, we're just speaking to them. So, so they go like this. The first one is, how could Republicans, the next one, why do Democrats or Christians are so, global warming is, wearing a mask is, and the most important, Canadians always are incredibly attractive, especially when embodied in the person of Ryan King. So I gave you the answer to the last one. But here's the thing. Republican, Democrats, Christians, global warming, wearing a mask, all of the other issues that exist, we can fill in the blank on the other, other side of the sentence, and the way we fill that in is going to be different for a lot of us. So here's the thing. Maybe in reading those things, I've maybe made you a little bit uncomfortable, and I think we just need to take a deep breath. Because my goal today is not to talk about any of those things specifically, not to, not to push an agenda, nothing like that. Honestly, my goal is simply to bring us back to the art of the conversation and how can Christians, how can we seek out unity in the midst of division? And if I can just reveal my full hand here, if you're already somebody with a short attention span, today is the talk for you because I'm just going to tell you the big idea on the front end. And it goes like this. It takes courage to listen and wisdom to speak well. It takes courage to listen and wisdom to speak well. That's it. That's where we're going. And especially at the end of this talk, we're really going to dive into that deep. Because, again, my, my goal isn't necessarily to, to dive into any of the issues today. I just, it breaks my heart that Christians are my, more likely to unfriend than understand people. Because here's the thing. If we can regain the art of the conversation, I think we're going to be able to move the ball forward on so much. Because with so much division, how can we tackle issues and bring love and light into the world if we can't even talk about them? Because here's the thing. I think if we embody the idea of listening courageously and speaking with wisdom, personally, we're going to take a step towards Jesus. And I think if we can do that as a community, we're going to be taking a step towards uh, restoration and love and hope. We're going to take a step towards bringing the kingdom of heaven here. Because that was always the goal of Jesus. So there's an early, there's an early author um, who articulates this perfectly, and his name is Matthew. And, and Matthew writes an account of Jesus' life. If you have a Bible, you can find it in the Gospel of Matthew. We're specifically going to look at something uh, in chapter 4. Because as Jesus launches into his ministry, as he gets ready to preach and teach and heal, he kind of, he kind of has a mission statement. 
And, and this mission statement is recorded by Matthew on the forefront of all of the action that Jesus is going to live into. So, so let, let's read that statement together. So the first part of it goes like this. Repent. Repent. This is the first end of Jesus' mission statement to the world, to the people of the time, and to us today. Repent. Recognize. Recognize who you are and recognize who you are in relation to God. And again, this, this word can be loaded with so many negative emotions and things like that. Simply, I think Jesus is trying to say, in humility, just recognize who you are and the things that you've done. And, and reconcile those things and turn away from those things because, and he finishes with this, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn away from what you've been doing. Turn away from the negative. Turn away from, and the word is sin, because something better is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. And Jesus goes on to to talk about this in just the following chapters of Matthew. He does this famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. That's how we know it. And he talks about who are the people that are going to be part of that kingdom. You can find that in Matthew 5, 3 through 10 if you want to check that out. And even in teaching us to pray, Jesus says famously, and some of you guys may have repeated this at dinners and at bedtimes, it's the line that goes, Lord, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Jesus' goal was always to bring heaven to earth and to allow us the opportunity to experience that. And here's the thing, and this is a message for all the Christians out there, all of my fellow Keystone friends out there. This is a mission for us And it's also, if you're not a Christian, this hopefully is something that is attractive enough to pull you into the gravity of this movement. Because as Christians, we may disagree on politics, policy, presidents, and pandemics, but we can agree on Jesus. Because we must never forget that we are all on the same team. But we've allowed, we've allowed the divisions of this world to decide our identities instead of Jesus. We've put other labels before the kingdom. And, and here's the thing. Like the, the labels I put on the screen earlier, these are inherently bad things. These aren't inherently bad things to live into uh, national identities or political identities, cultural identities, class identities, sports identities, movie franchises, musical tastes, all the things that we're passionate about and that we live into, you know, those help define who we are. But we have to be careful that we don't allow those things to become ultimate. Because ultimately, if these labels are more important than Christ, then, then we're in trouble. Because they're not bad, but when, when good things become our ultimate thing, ultimately they will destroy us. And here's the thing about a lot of those labels. A lot of those labels separate the people who are in from the people who are out. They tell us who is our group and who is not our group. And there's a really famous and incredible study that I actually want to talk about that I think is really, really cool. And you may have heard about it in high school psychology, but we're going to bring it up again. And if you don't know this one, it's it's really fun, and it's honestly just some good summer vibes. It's called the Robber's Cave Study. 
And it's a provocative name, but it's simply a name given because Robber's Cave is an area in Oklahoma where this study was done. So I want to talk about it for a little bit. And it is a fascinating study. So it's performed by this Turkish-American psychologist named Musafer Shamir in 1954. And it sought to explore intergroup behavior. And this study specifically looked at the group, uh, a group of 11-year-old boys. So here's a picture, actually, of some of those boys. And I love this picture because you have, like, all these, like, boys, like, hanging out. They're taking the picture. And then there's this guy, this guy, like, over here. I'll be honest with you. That 100% would have been me. 100% hanging off of that, just, just chilling. But these guys, they look pretty cool. So this is how the study worked. The researchers got two different groups of 11-year-old boys, and those two different groups did summer camp. You know, they hiked, they climbed, they swam, they, they, they brought, like, they created team names and team identities, and, and they just did summer camp. But they weren't aware of the other groups. So then after they experienced these weeks of summer camp, the researchers brought the two groups together. And believe it or not, they hated each other. And here's actually a picture of the two different groups. Um, so on the left, this is their flag they made that's called, um, I think it's the Tomahawk Eagles. Um, and then over here, it's harder to see theirs, but I would be on this team. They're the Rattlers, which is hardcore. So there's these two teams that are brought together, and they hate each other because what happened when they were brought together, they didn't see each other as 11-year-old boys who experienced camp together, who all came from similar class, right? Like, like they didn't see the similarities. Instead, they said, that group is not my group. And that brings us to a word you may or may not have heard before, which is tribalism. Tribalism. Tribalism in and of itself is, again, the us from the them. A tribe is the people in the group that we belong to. A tribe demands loyalty and offers safety and security. Tribes entrench us in ideas. And a lot of the times tribes entrench us, but they don't necessarily enrich us. Because tribes are a, a badge of, of identity and not necessarily free thought. Right? Tribalism is this idea that I'm going to allow my group to define me rather than allow myself to define this group. And it's easy to resort into this. And here's the thing that you may be thinking, especially if you have apprehensions about Christianity, because isn't Christianity just a tribe then? What, what I was just describing sounds a lot like the Christianity many of you have experienced. And if I can answer that question, the honest, unfortunate reality is that Christianity has very much fallen into tribalism. Because the movement that Jesus planned 2,000 years ago was hijacked by human brokenness. You know, people have been hurt by the religious dogma and the religious rules and the legalism, right? Instead of, of, of looking to Jesus and seeing the radical, unifying, like, like inv invitation that people are brought into, instead we made it a who is in and who is not, who's going to heaven and who's going to hmm, hmm, burn, 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 right? That's what we've done with Christianity, but it was never meant to be this way. And this is what's crazy. It's not just in 2020 and in the last few years that this has happened. From the beginning, right after Jesus died, he encountered 
people struggling with the in-group and the out-group. Right? There's this church that's called the Church of Galatians, or it's in the area of Galatia. And these people, a lot of the people in the Church of Galatia, and this is a church that started just after Jesus' death, they're trying to wrap their minds around their Jewish identity, this old religious identity that informed them that they were God's chosen people set apart from everybody else. Now talk about tribalism. And again, this is ancient culture, so tribal language is a norm for them. And they were trying to reconcile the, the, the legalism. They're trying to reconcile their, their old identities with this new one that they were being given in Christ. And on comes the scene, a pastor named Paul. And what Paul has to say to them is a wake-up call about who they truly are. And honestly, for us today, It should be a wake-up call as well. So we're going to explore that. Again, if you have a Bible and you want to read that through with us, we're in Galatians 3, and we're going to be in verses 23 through 29. Um, And and what is said here is incredible. So hang with me. This is like so cool. This is so cool. So can you throw the first part of that off? So here's the thing. Paul is writing to the church of Galatia, and he's trying to clear up some of these issues for them, these issues of legalism and these issues of identity. So he says this. Before the coming of this faith, before the coming of Christianity, before we believed in Jesus, we were held in custody under the law. So he's saying, hey, Jewish Christians, before Christ came, we had to live under the law. We had to live under all of the rules, all of the regulations, all of this old identity. He continues on to say, we were held in custody under the law, locked up which isn't a good thing, until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So he's saying, we were always waiting for something. We were always, Jews, like Jews of the time, wake up. We were always waiting for something. So the law, this old identity, this old structure, was our guardian. Now, when we read through and we just hear guardian, we have different things that come to mind. You know, maybe a a knight or an angel or a protector, and that kind of has the flavor. But if you go to the original Greek, which I love to do because it's good to remember the Bible was in Greek and Hebrew and different cultures and languages, we're going to find a really interesting context, the guardian. Can you throw that up? So the word guardian here is Pedagogos, which honestly sounds like a really cool kid's yogurt brand or like a type of Healy. But pedagogos is the word for guardian here. And on the top level, it's a tutor or guide for boys. But specifically, it's, it's a trustworthy slave that followed a boy until maturity. Right? So, so this term, you were, Galatians, you were under a guardian. You were under a trustworthy slave. You were under somebody appointed. You were under the law that was supposed to be there so that you would reach maturity eventually. So can you throw up the, the, the verse there? Um, this, this next one. Um, so, so, the law was, so the law was our, yeah, yeah, you're on the top there for that to go up here. So the law was our guardian. We were always waiting for something. The law was temporary until you reached maturity. So throw that next part that follows this. So the law was our guardian until, and here's the level of maturity, until Christ came that we may be justified by faith. Our old identity was always waiting for Jesus. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer 
under a guardian. This old identity has fallen away and we should live into this new identity. For us today, so let's pull this, us today, the old identities that we allow to define us as the first and foremost are nothing in comparison to Christ. We're supposed to put those aside for this new one. Can you pop up the next verse? So in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. And again, this is a message for believers, for those who say they are Christ followers. You have said, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus. I see this movement. I don't understand all of it, but I want that in my life. I want that love and I want that purpose. I am going to clothe myself in that and move forward with that identity. And this next part, this next part, pull it in, pull it in. This next part is one of the most incredible things and should be so encouraging to us in 2020. Paul says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that again because again, it's so powerful. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. You are all one in Christ. Your old cultural identities from Jews, those who are religiously in and those who are religiously not in, removed. Neither slave nor free, these power structures, removed. Uh, there's neither male nor female. Again, another power structure in ancient days, removed. And here's the, the crazy thing. The Jews, after Paul writes this, they still have Jewish ancestry. The Gentiles still have Gentile ancestry. Like, slaves aren't all of a sudden going to be set free. Like, that's what um, is incredible here, is that these identities still exist in the background, male and female, but we're always to remember our united purpose in Christ Jesus, our united label and identity in Christ Jesus, and the other things should fall away because this supersedes it. And Paul finishes up this chunk by saying, if you belong to Christ, so listen here, Keystone, you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and the heirs according to the promise. So this sounds weird because it's Abraham's seed and it's just weird language, but he's basically saying there, if you belong to Christ today, you are always part of the ancient promise at the beginning of Genesis that God said to Abraham, and you are part of something so big. Man, I'm fired up. I'm fired. I wore, I wore like pants today, so I am sweating right now because that gets me excited right there. We're all united in Christ. So let's take a look back at that robber's study because it doesn't just end in tribalism. Something incredible happens. So eventually, the researchers were trying to figure out how can we bring these boys together? And they gave them some different activities. Maybe if they just play games together and they do activities together, they'll pull together. But no, they recognized who was in and who was not in. But when they put problems in front of the entire group, they started to break down those barriers. One of those problems, and here's a picture of it, was the, the water tank container was broken. And for all of the boys in the camp to have water, the boys had the task of fixing it. And the groups started to break down into one. Fancy psychological terms call this a superordinate goal. 
which again is just one goal that is above all other labels. It's the superordinate goal. And in that robber's cave study, the superordinate goals brought them together. So here's the thing. We just talked about being united as Christians, being united under this kingdom that Jesus is trying to bring here. And, and I hope we can all get on that page of being united and putting our label of Jesus first. And I know for some people that, that have been burned by Christianity, that's, that's going to be difficult. That's going to be hard. But I think, but I think there's something that that maybe can change your mind on it. And it's something that as Christians, I think we should always remind ourselves of because it grounds us back in our identity. Because what if, for Christians, there was a superordinate goal? What if there was one thing that we all could get on the same page of and live out of? The good news is, there is. And Jesus told it to us. Because here's the thing. Right before Jesus was to be arrested and crucified, he had a dinner with his closest friends, with his disciples, with his mentees, and he was going to line out the last things they needed to know. And there was one thing he said, one ethic that he said that should define not only those early followers, but the movement to follow. It was our superordinate goal. It was a new command, and Jesus puts it that way. This is in John 13, 34, John being one of those early people. He writes this down, that Jesus said, Jesus speaking to his friends, Jesus speaking to his followers, a new command I give you, love one another. And it's important to ask ourselves, love who one another? Love who one another? All people. It's not just the people that are in. Love one another, because he said earlier that to treat your neighbor is everyone. Your neighbor is not just the in crowd. Your neighbor is this world. He goes on to say, love one another as I have loved you. So to reiterate, you must love one another. And again, as I have loved you and everyone in that room is thinking about how Jesus had loved them. But not only that, they in reflecting back on this after Jesus' death would have asked What did Jesus do? How did Jesus love me? Yeah, he died for me. He sacrificed himself for me. And Jesus says, so you must love one another in the same way, in the same sacrificial and radical way. And here's the thing. I'm not a verse memorizer. Honestly, when I was a kid in church, it was just bad news bears for all of them church teachers, right? But if there's one verse, if there's one verse that I have just a passion that all Christians should not only like just know, but should live into, and that we should come back to again and again, not only individually, but as keystone, but as a giant church, it's this one, because this is where our identity falls. And Jesus concludes Even this powerful statement was this, by this, by this love, everyone, again, when he says one another, he's not talking about just the people in the room, he's talking about everyone, everyone around will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Ah, I just, I just love this so much. Christians, you're defined by your love. You're defined by the way you love people, (laughs) I just want to be on the same page of that with everybody that comes into Keystone and everybody in this church. So let's take a quick step back. 
Let's take a quick step back from all this. Where are we at? Because this sounds all so good. At least to me, it sounds good. I hope to you it does. You know, a united kingdom pulled together by, by love, by sacrificing for other people. This is the mission. This is the beauty of Jesus. It's bringing heaven to earth that we can set aside our other identities and that we can live into this. This sounds so ideal, but that's maybe part of the problem. It sounds so ideal. How do we live into it? See, here's the thing. Whenever I sit in a seat or whenever I, I teach or whenever I listen to a teaching, I always am trying to figure out what do I do with this? And that's where we come back to our big idea. Can you throw that up there for me? It takes courage to listen and wisdom to speak well. I think if we can grasp onto these two little things, if we can grasp onto this whole big idea, we can bring that big old kingdom of heaven, we can bring that love to earth because we can showcase our love and our ability to listen and we can showcase our love and the things that come out of our mouths because in 2020, these two things, this art of the conversation is severely lacking everywhere and Christians are not exempt. Because if you're like, you know, I, I do these things well, our community needs to do these things well. And I think there's something that we all can listen to in this big idea. And this is honestly, let me just say, this is honestly an ironic thing to, t like, to teach on, to teach on listening, to teach on speaking when all I'm doing is speaking. And if I can be honest with you, we're going to talk about, so can you flip it so it's just, this is the yellow. This is the thing that I need to learn more of is listening. Because if you haven't figured out, I love to talk. I love to have my opinion be heard. But I struggle with hearing the opinions of other people. So if we can briefly dive into each one of these and I can give you a question one question that you can maybe wrestle down to the ground with to understand where you're at in these. But here's the thing. It takes courage to listen. It takes courage to listen. Listening is something that our world is in desperate need of. Right? Just sitting down and understanding another person. Understanding somebody that we love and maybe somebody that whose ideas and policies we don't necessarily love, but seeing them as valuable and listening to them. Because here's the thing, we all, we all have so many passions and convictions. And as Christians, that whole like love one another as I have loved you, we have different ways of living that out. Because it, it sounds simple, but it can be kind of complex when you're living it out, not only like person to person, but how do we love our community? How do we love Michigan? How do we love America? How do we live into that love. We're going to have different ideas. We're going to have different, like, again, convictions on that. But when we can recognize and listen to and understand another person and that they're trying to bring love here and hopefully they're trying to bring love here to earth, then we're able to bring love to them. We're able to listen to them. We may not strategically align in our viewpoints, but at least hopefully at the end of the conversation, they can go, you know what? That person really cared about me. They really sought to understand me. Not only my point of view, but me. So here's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a question and then I'm gonna rephrase it. So don't put it up, don't put the question up quite yet for me because I wanna read one and then rephrase it. So it goes like this. Do we, do you, do I truly listen to a person or am I, we, you, just waiting for an opportunity to interject our point? Essentially, goes like this. 
Are we so fixated with our point of view that no one else's opinion matters unless it lines up with ours? When you're listening to somebody, are you just waiting for that, that gap in the conversation to insert yourself, to insert your opinion? Or do you let just somebody finish what they have to say? Again, even if you're thinking they're, they're wrong, do you, do you wait to see what they have to say and hear it out fully? The second one. So let's talk about the second part of our big idea. If we can actually listen, if we can actually engage in the first half of the conversation, I think that then gives us the opportunity in the privilege of speaking and hopefully, hopefully speaking with wisdom. There's a quick thing. I don't have, I don't have the verse, but I really want to bring this up. Um, James, the half-brother of Jesus, has this brilliant passage, this brilliant passage in one of his letters to early Christians about, about speaking. And honestly, the whole Bible, all throughout history, speaks about the power of speaking. Because speaking, talking, has been a problem for humanity for so long. As uh, James, James will say, you know, the tongue is like a spark that can light up a wildfire. The tongue is the rudder to the boat. It steers us. The, the, our power to speak, our words are really important. And they really point to is if we are willing to love people. So James says this thing, and I think it's just really powerful, and puts other people in the right perspective. James essentially says... With our tongue, with our words, as Christians, we bless our Lord and Father. We bless God. And with it, with the same words, we curse the people who are made in the likeness of that God. That's convicting for me. Because a lot of the time when I see people on the other side of issues that I'm passionate about, I see them as enemies. I see them as somebody to take down rather than as being made in the image of God and being valued by God. So I'm going to give you a question for the speaking part. And again, these two questions I want you to wrestle with this week. And this question goes like this. Do the words you speak, and here's the important part because it's not just speak. Do the words you speak, type, text, post, or reply with, let me say that again. Do the words you speak, type, text, post, or reply with, I'm talking to you, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter users, this is just as important as when you speak with your mouth. Do they reflect love and value for that person? And that person on the other side of the conversation, that person on the other side of the screen, do you communicate love and value for them, or are you just trying to get your opinion across? It's an important question that I think we need to wrestle down. And I think if we can do both of those things, can you throw up the big idea? I honestly think that if we, if we have the courage to listen and the wisdom to speak well, the patience to speak well, I think if we do this, we take a step towards bringing heaven here in 2020. And I'm going to leave you with a challenge again. I'm so about living into challenges and having my life transformed and not just listening. I really want to move myself somewhere. And again, this is a, this is a conversation that I need to wrestle down. I'm not perfect at this. I struggle with listening. And honestly, I don't do the best at speaking well because I just like to speak all the time. Sometimes I need to take a step back. So I have a challenge that, that maybe will rattle you a little bit, but I think it's important that we engage in it. And it goes, goes like this. So just listen real quick and then we'll pray and end this thing. This week, for all of us Keystone, for all of us here in this church, this week, take some time to identify groups and or people 
who defer in personal opinions, political approaches, social ide ideologies, so on. So whether, again, it's our list, Republicans, Democrats, uh, people that wear masks, people that don't wear masks, people that believe in global warming, people that don't believe in global warming, people that love the president, people that don't love the president. Identify the people that drive you crazy. And when you identify them, recognize the feelings and emotions that emerge when you identify the other. That's the important part. So when you start thinking about them, and maybe you already felt a little that tension when I brought up some of them names, so you feel that arise in you, just recognize it. Recognize that you're placing them in the other. And that you're saying, I'm in, they're out. They're different than me. And here's the thing. We need to pray that God can help us extend grace to the other. Because Jesus said to love one another. And here's the thing. Take some real time to contemplate how you plan on, because it's going to happen. You're going to see a post. You're going to see a person. You're going to see an opinion. You're going to want to respond. Plan on how you want to engage those people with different views. And ask yourself, what does it look like to reflect Christ in that? And I believe, I believe if we can wrestle that challenge down, man, we're going to restore the art of the conversation. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you so much for, for Keystone. Thank you for this church that is seeking to bring the heaven, the, the kingdom of heaven to earth, God. God, when, when Christ gives us that commandment to love one another as he loved us, man, that's radical. And it charges us up, God. And we can live into that in so many ways. And God, as I see it, again, this is an issue that breaks my heart and hopefully breaks the hearts of so many. So we've lost the art of the conversation. We've lost the ability to talk to people who are not like us. So God, help us restore that. Because we, when we restore the art of the conversation, when we restore our ability to listen thoroughly, when we restore our ability to speak wisely and with patience, we communicate love, and I think we move this world forward towards the kingdom of heaven. God, we live in a broken and hard and confusing world, and these times are so heavy. But God, I think in you we can find purpose and hope and restoration. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for all the friends that tuned in. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your weekend, and we'll see you next week for a new series.